Hi, everyone. You're listening to Notes from the Ivy League, where I ask first-generation and low-income college students who attend some of the most selective colleges in the country to share their stories and advice for college applicants. I'm your host, Andrew Williams, a.k.a. That Ivy League Guy. My guest today is one of the realest and, I would say, most driven people I've met in a very long time. She's done fantastic and essential work at Yale as a student leader, and I'm sure she's doing the same as a psychology PhD student at Columbia University. Her name's Dara. Dara, (laughs) welcome to the second episode of Notes from the Ivy League. I'm so glad you could join us. I'm really so honored to be invited. This is really exciting. Just thinking back on high school and being able to help students that were, like myself, low income. So like most of our listeners don't know anything about you. I know (laughs) know a little bit about you because, you know, we we went to school together. So would you mind sharing your your story in in a nutshell? Sure. I guess I'll start with what's important. I am from South Florida. I attended school there. And during that time, I lived with my West Indian mother. Both of my parents are from the Caribbean, specifically Jamaica and Trinidad. So I have that first generation American thing going for me. In terms of who I am today, I, again, am a social psychology PhD student. I'm very much so interested in the socio-political outcomes of race and gender. And during undergrad, I spent a lot of time looking at perceptions of Black women specifically. So that's kind of what I'm up to, where I'm from. I hope that's a good enough <laughs> background, I guess. Yeah, yes, definitely. And I think one of the most common questions people ask first-gen or low-income college students when they go to an Ivy League, it's like, how did mm-hmm. you get there? So I'd <laughs> how, like, what did you do in high school? That... You know what? <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. So let's, let's get into it then. I think that question is always so funny because again, I'm thinking back on this as a current 22 year old reflecting back on my high school self, which to me was just like eons ago. And when I was you know, preparing to come on the podcast, I had to like shuffle through old applications and essays and stuff to sort of see what was I doing in high school and the answer to that is entirely too much so (laughs) I I'd say when it really comes down to it I was involved in a lot of academic extracurricular groups I also ran track for all four years I was captain of the track team eventually I was in an academy so in my high school, you could be involved in a number of academies. So for example, there was like a biotechnology academy. There was a like an early childhood education ad- academy. I happened to be part of the Gilderland and History and Law Academy. So that basically just meant that one class per year was predetermined and it was pertaining to law or history. So I did that. Um, in addition to that, though, I... Definitely was proactive in terms of, you know, if I could take a course at a local community college, I did that. I was involved in that end, and I was in a number of AP classes, which is typically the norm for a lot of students who end up in the Ivy League. They have access, the privilege to be in AP advanced placement courses. So (laughs) that's kind of what I was doing throughout that time. And honestly, that is just, I think, the tip of the iceberg, because truth be told, I don't actually remember, I feel like, half of what I was doing. I just know I was always doing something. Yeah, I mean, that is definitely a lot. Um, <laughs> I don't think I did half of that in high school. Uh, but right. so like the first question that really popped in my mind was like, how does someone so young, I'm, talk- I'm talking about your high school self, like, <laughs> right. get motivated to do all these things and then apply to college? You know, here's that part of the bio when I said I had 
West Indian Caribbean parents, here's the part where that comes back in. So first and foremost, the, um, the value and importance of education was instilled in me from an incredibly young age. Um, my mother at one point was a teacher. Uh, my father did attend college. So on that, on that front, I'm not a first-generation college student because one of my parents did complete college. At any rate, the value of education was instilled in me at a young age, and I just so happened to, for whatever reason, actually be kind of bright as a kid. I was, I was relatively smart, so um, I enjoyed doing well in school from a young age, and knowing that college was an expectation, and knowing that I wanted it to you know, be the best that I could be and go to the best place I could go, I was always sort of working diligently but you know not without faltering I was working always to um, basically get to that school whatever that school was and when I was younger my first school of choice I believe when I was in high school was actually Princeton but we'll oh. get into that later <laughs> I changed but but that's you know it's imp- it's actually important and you know this is a bit tangential but it's important because the reason my first choice was Princeton at that time was not because I particularly liked Princeton in any capacity I didn't even actually know what any of these schools meant at that time. I just knew a name and I knew that you had to get good grades to get in. So (laughs) that's number one. But number two was the reason Princeton was my first choice was because I was told by my mother that if I got into Princeton as someone who was low income, then they would provide me full financial aid. And that was what it was about. It was about getting into a school that would allow me to go for free because or for as close to free as possible. And that was important because she couldn't provide me financial resources to continue my education to completion. So these were the type of things that went into my drive, my motivation to do well and be involved in high school. That makes complete sense. Did you have any hard moments when you were applying to college? Well, one of my struggles was that I was hardworking, sure. My, you know, high school, my little high school resume was impressive. But part of my issue was that it actually didn't have that much insight into the college process. Mm-hmm. Um, so the insight I did receive, I received it, you know, I, I went to like a college counselor at school. And, you know, there was obviously a baseline expectation that I was to go to college, but it's not like I, I was having that, you know, constant dialogue with my parent about college. You know, she it wasn't as if I was being walked through the process. When I was doing applications, I was very much so doing them on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was doing them, you know, I was writing my essays and filling out, you know, whatever little scholarship applications, whatever financial aid things. And I was studying for the SAT on my own. I didn't have a tutor. I basically just had like this old book that I, I guess I read a couple of times. I'm like, okay, well, this is good enough. So that was, I think, somewhat of a challenge, not necessarily having the most, I didn't have the strongest guidance, I would say. And that, you know, it ultimately worked out in the end. And I won't say I had no guidance. There are people that had way less guidance than myself. I was very blessed to have the guidance I did have. But I think if I had more guidance, I would have been far more intentional about the college application process. So mm-hmm. that brings me to the answer to your question, which is I applied to way too many schools. <laughs> <laughs> I, I applied to like 15 schools, which is stupid because mm-hmm. some of them I applied to literally knowing like nothing, almost yeah. nothing about them. 
besides the fact that they were decent schools. I obviously had like my safety schools and I had like middle tier, but I was really kind of just casting a net Mm -hmm. in a way that probably cost me hours of my life that I could have saved to do like, like do other activities. So I would say that was, those are kind of two struggles wrapped into one narrative about um, not the most direct guidance and then also just sort of wasting time by not being as intentional and calculated about my college application process as I probably should have been. I did the the same thing. And I think a lot of high schoolers out there in similar situations like yours or mine, where there wasn't that much guidance on the college application process, one, they might think that like they might feel self-conscious or like they think that they're, they're not good enough because their family can't afford a tutor or right. whatever. And like, yeah, I did the same thing, like get a book from the library and study it. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> it it might have been like three weeks. Honestly, mm-hmm. I don't even know. <laughs> I, it was a very light studying process. Yeah. But like, I think that is better when you actually you're hungry for it and you want mm-hmm. it and you're like willing to put in the work versus Timmy who has his parents <laughs> you say Timmy yes <laughs> oh my god who has his his parents pay for everything and college is assumed and he doesn't really want to go to college mm, interesting and he's just like okay yes I'll like whatever I'll do this and I think there's, there's such such a difference but then also that hunger and that motivation to go to college also manifests itself in like over applying I would say like you said yeah. you, you applied to like 15 schools. Yeah. <laughs> I, I applied to over 30 schools. I don't know if you know this. Oh, Lord. I applied to over 30 <laughs> schools. And like, if I, any school that sent me mail, I was like, <laughs> yes, I'm applying. That was so <laughs> funny. Oh, my God. I didn't think that any college in its right mind would willingly admit a kid from the projects in Arkansas mm. to go to college. Like, because I'm the, I, no one in my family went to college. Right. So, I was, I was literally freaking out. I was like, I don't want to join the military. I don't want to work in the factory for the rest of my life. I need to get to college. Um, and obviously, I got into one of the best schools in the in the world. You sure um, did. Once more students from low income and first generation backgrounds realize that that schools actually want them there. And it's it's all right if you have to get a book that's three years old from the library <clears throat> and study for the SAT or the ACT. Um, once they realize that, I think they'll be in a better place mentally um, because it it can be daunting when you're in that situation trying to go to some of the best colleges in the in the country. You know what? That is also true. And one thing I would also say is that I think it's important for high schoolers, particularly low income and or minority and or first generation um, high schoolers, to understand that this is all a game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is a business. And, and frankly, it's not personal. <laughs> so, you know, number one, if you don't get in, it actually could have nothing to do with whether or not you're actually qualified. It could be just happenstance. But number two, recognizing that you have every right to play the game as everyone else mm-hmm. is super important and play it the best way you can. And that's what I was doing. I was playing the game. I was and getting involved in sports, I was doing the extracurricular activities because I knew that there was somewhat of a formula. It's not a strict formula, mm-hmm. but there is somewhat of a formula that requires you to demonstrate that you're doing all you can to be intellectually engaged, to be well-rounded, 
to be spending your free time in meaningful ways. And because it wasn't as if, you know, I, I, I wasn't starting up, you know, nonprofits in <laughs> countries across the world, like some of my peers at Yale did, but I was doing the best with what I had and the resources that I had. And for me, because I didn't necessarily have access to transportation, I didn't have a mom that was, you know, driving me to and from activities. I had to plot my behind at school and take the activity bus home when everything was through. And that that basically um, was a mechanism by which I was so involved on campus because that was the only place I could be involved. And it was the only place that would basically uh, increase my chances of fine-tuning my little academic resume so that I could be a contender for, you know, Yale and Princeton and, and these and these colleges in general. Yeah, like and you know, I like to think of applying to college is like it's like it's just like dating in high school. You have, <laughs> oh God, <laughs> you have your eye set on that that person, and like, <laughs> let's say this let, metaphor is killing me right now. <laughs> but seriously, like, let's say let's say you have this person. Like, okay, I know that they like this, this, and this, and you try to make yourself like them. Like, that, that's just how I see applying to college. But also, you just don't say yes to the first person that asks you to prom either. Unless That's deep, <laughs> unless you're in, unless you're in a situation where if you get one offer to prom, then the, you take it. Then, yeah, I think that was a really interesting metaphor because <laughs> I would not have likened it to dating, but you know what? Whatever works, I guess. Whatever it takes. Um, that's so interesting. And you know what, on top of that, here's what I will say. You mentioned a second ago that, you know, these schools do want students that come from, you know, non-traditional backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And they do insofar as <clears throat> there are, there is a, you know, group of people on a number of these campuses. You know, they could, it could be a group of two, it could be a group of 10, whatever, that does want to include people that have been historically excluded from these spaces but do keep in mind that ultimately we are in America and (laughs) the structures that be are not necessarily they're not necessarily invested Mm -hmm. in certain groups of people and that's particularly low-income and minority individuals so it's it's not a walk in the park when you do get here so so you get to so you get to your dream school whatever that is let's say it's university uh, not university, let's say it's Dartmouth. And you get there and you're like, wow, they accepted me. Wow, they must really want me. Um, I feel so great. I'm about to like, <laughs> I'm about to have a 4.0. I'm about to, you know, whatever. Just keep in mind that you have to preserve your spirit once you get there. And it's going to be hard. It's a, it's, it, it is very much so still a difficult environment for people that don't belong to upper class or white or whatever demographic. And I think high schoolers should be aware of that mm-hmm. before they get in and then they're, they accepted the invitation or they, they matriculated or whatever. And then they're shook because it's like, Oh wow. Like this is, this is actually kind of stressful or, you know, actually it's kind of concerning that my peers keep asking me to buy all this expensive furniture and I have no money or hmm, it's kind of weird that on spring break I have to basically starve because the dining hall dining hall isn't open like you start to notice things Mm -hmm. Um, and some people aren't prepared for that 
and then they're upset with their college experience or they feel like, you know, resentment or regret about accepting it. But I think it's just if you if you understand that it's going to be an upward battle, (laughs) regardless of whether or not you get in, then I think you can make a more informed decision about where you decide to have that upward battle Mm -hmm. and what tools or resources or networks you want to have at your disposal before you get there. That upper battle doesn't even end after graduation. Like you still, right. you still fight that battle. Yeah, that's something that people don't necessarily talk about until you get to get into school. How institutionally unaccommodating a school can be. Yeah, and you know that isn't just discouraging anyone from going. Absolutely. Oh yeah. You, know, you the resources at these schools are unmatched. That's just a fact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's unmatched, and you you like like Andrew just said, you will get return on your investment. Um, in a really, really meaningful way that you, you might not even really appreciate until you graduate. But, you know, it's still important to recognize that you carry with you the person you were before you got into that school. And there are going to be some things that you didn't even know you didn't know, that once you get there, you'll be very, very aware that you are missing. For example, you know, there were a number of different, like, for example, networking. Mm-hmm. That was something that was not quite on my radar when I was in high school Mm -hmm. but for a lot of students it's something that either they had been acquainted with um through their family or through their I don't know their their uh, schools um and it was something that came easier to them that for me I didn't even know where to start and networking is incredibly it's vastly important um in college but particularly in the Ivy League because that is how you make that is how you basically build yourself up. And that is how you make sure you're actually getting that return on investment that you seek. Because the resources you have available to you, if you don't reach out to get them, they're just going to stay there. And you're not going to know they're there or you're not going to be able to retrieve them before it's too late. You know, there are a couple of things that basically, you know, might be just too, might be important to know beforehand. But that isn't to say that it's impossible to achieve once you get there. Like we all we all kind of find our way. Yeah, and, and when you were talking, I just thought of how networking for a lot of people, including myself, when I, you know, a few years ago, networking is a slimy, gross term that you don't want to, you, you don't want to be known as like a networker. So um, right. do you have any advice on how to network? What I will say is, I used to also think that networking was incredibly slimy, and it can be, definitely. Um, I won't say that it cannot be slimy, but... You can also look at look at it as a way of just building connections um, that are meaningful to you. Um, it doesn't have to be something where you meet someone once and they know they have something you want, so you're following up with them simply because they have something that you want. It can be, you know, a, a lasting working relationship with someone whereby you contribute to something they're working on to their product or you go to their event or you, you know, you donate to their cause or whatever the case may be. And they in turn um, equally willingly also have something that you might find useful. So for example, they might know about, you know, a job that is hiring um, post-grad or they might know about, you know, a fellowship that you hadn't even thought about that might be useful to you. Or it could just be, you know, a working relationship in the sense that you share you share insights from whatever you know 
part of the working world or academic space you're part of, then that can be also quite useful. Speaking of exchanges of information, do you have any daily or weekly or monthly rituals that you'd like to share that, <laughs> that, contribute, <laughs> that contribute to your success? You know what? I am a firm believer uh, in the power of getting your behind to bed at a reasonable hour. I am not on the, you know, I'm going to stay up all night. Mm-hmm. I'm not on that tip, like, at all. I yeah. think that's out of... It's just, I, I played that game in high school, and you know what? Maybe at that time, I was still young and vibrant, and I could do stuff like that, but now <laughs> but now I have a bedtime, and I instituted a bedtime in college, because when you're, when you don't, when you're not well-rested, you're just not a functioning person. Exactly. Um, that's just number one. Number two, I would say that making sure you're doing at least one thing a week that is just for you that you just not not for any reason other than you enjoy it so for me you know I have a bunch of things that I find like (laughs) amusing I guess like I spend a lot of time on YouTube and I really love to cook so I make sure I'm you know I'm cooking every week and you know it's also a necessity for life so I guess Mm -hmm. that's a good thing (laughs) and you know for me also I've recently started uh, started about going to the gym like fairly regularly because I know that if I don't look great, I'm going to feel a way about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I do that as well. But those are some of the things. I don't necessarily have like very strict productivity rituals. Like I'm not the type of person that wakes up every single morning at like 6 a.m. and like journals what I'm going to do for the day. I wish I was that person, but I'm not. Um, but if you are that person, more power to you, and you're probably setting yourself up for a great productive life <laughs> in the future. No, I mean, but also, you know, sleeping and eating and cooking and working out, still wonderful things to do on a regular basis. It's, <laughs> yes, uh, eating um, is a wonderful thing to do regularly. <laughs> yes, very, very much. So we're like getting close to the end of the of the podcast. So do you have any quotes that you live by or think of often there are a number of quotes that I think about often um, but they're not necessarily relevant to this segment (laughs) but um, I guess I can offer those if you're interested yeah okay so one thing that I want to quote that I um, I've recently started living by well not recently I think I've lived by this for quite a while but one that one that I've recently articulated into words is you don't actually have to argue with anyone that God is already punishing and what I mean by that is save your energy and pick your battles uh, preserve your spirit and understand that not every time someone um, slights you or you not every time you feel slighted or disrespected or unheard not all the time is it intentional Sometimes people are just going through whatever it is that they're going through and, you know, they're working through their problems and it's not your problem to um, address. So that's one thing that I've I've recently started thinking intentionally about in my day-to-day life. Don't give those people your energy. Like a few years ago, you know, DJ Khaled was so big (laughs) on, you know, they, you know, in quotation marks, like (laughs) they, like don't, don't, don't pay attention to they. And sometimes um, it's not yeah. even they. Sometimes it's people that you, you know, are close with that are just having a, tr- a tough time. And it could be, you know, in high school, it could be your peers um, who might be, you know, upset with you or 
demonstrating some sort of animosity because maybe you got into a school that they didn't or you got an SAT score that they didn't or whatever the case may be. It's often not as personal as it seems. It's very much so more a reflection of what their spirit is enduring Mm -hmm. (laughs) than it is about you and anything that you have done. So just keep yourself upright and um, just be be aware and give people space to get themselves together. Now it's time for the lightning round. I have a few questions. <laughs> um, so what is your favorite song right now? Oh my God. Uh, oh no, a bunch of music just came out last night. Okay, I've recently, uh, I don't know, I can't answer this. I'm messing up the lightning round. <laughs> <laughs> Can I skip it and come back? <laughs> Sure. Uh, what's your favorite movie? <laughs> oh, this is so funny. Uh, my favorite movie of all time is Forrest Gump. Okay, nice, nice. Book? Oh, probably the autobiography of Asada Shakur. Nice. I have not read that. I should. Um, favorite TV show right now? Ooh, right now. Um, I'm really into uh, How to Get Away with Murder right now. Okay. And your favorite junk food? Oh, wow. Okay, if I'm going to have a junk food, I really like salt and vinegar chips or Oreos dipped in peanut butter. Oh, I've never heard of the Oreo peanut butter combo. It's transformative. I got it from this, (laughs) I got it from, what do you call it, Parent Trap. Mm -hmm. They did that in the movie, and I'm like, hmm, I'll try that. And it was great. Okay. And going back, what's your favorite song right now? Okay. Um, I'm going to go with I'm gonna say a random, randomly, uh, randomly selected song from Cardi B's newest album, "Invasion of Privacy," would be my favorite song right now. I couldn't choose one. <laughs> okay, I keep hearing great things about that album, so I'll definitely have to check that out. So yeah, that is the end of the lightning round. Dara, thank you again for joining me on the second episode of the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Um, yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, of course. And uh, for everyone listening, I'll, I'll put the links for everything we've spoken about in the description and on my blog. Um, so until next time, thank you for listening.